0: Well, let's start with prayer. Father, we come before you and we are humbled and grateful and we are in desperate need to hear from you, Lord. That's why we gather is to hear from you and from your word to be encouraged and equipped for the ministries that you've called us to. And so uh, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. It was July of 1994, and I was five going on six, and it was my first adventure trip to Colorado. So my dad decided it would be awesome for us to go to Colorado, and it was one of those trips that you'll never forget. Uh, we went whitewater rafting, we went on the alpine slides, uh, I learned to ride my bike without my training wheels so that my girl cousins wouldn't beat me, you know, all the fun stuff. Um, and so one day, though, my dad said, "Let's," you know, he wanted uh, for us to go and explore mountains, so we went up on this mountainside and we started hiking, and as we hiked, it got sea and steeper. And it got to the point at which my dad said, listen, you need to stay here behind this tree. And I'm going to go up and explore a little bit more. And he told me very sternly, well, as soon as he left out of sight, I was not the most obedient son. And so as soon as he left, I was like, I hightailed it up the side of the mountain. And as I climbed higher and higher, it obviously got steeper and steeper. And it got to the point at which I could no longer stand. And I slipped. And I started to slide and I started to roll down the side of a mountain. And I was screaming and grabbing everything I could to hold on to before I fell off the mountain completely. Now, all of this happened. I put myself in deadly peril because I disobeyed my father's command. Because I refused to listen. Now, if there was ever a moment that I needed to be rescued, that would have been the moment of rescue. Now, why do I tell this story? I tell this story because the Bible tells us a story. It tells us a beautiful, captivating, and terrifyingly true story of a situation that we find ourselves in the middle of. Its pages communicate that we are in desperate need of a rescuer. Perhaps the most dangerous part of this is that most of us are unaware and blind to the peril that we're in. Now, we're in the middle of our four-part series, and Darren has uh, already communicated that uh, you know creation... And rebellion and today we're going to talk about rescue god created and he said that it was good humanity rebelled against god's command ushering in sin and chaos into the world now we see lust greed pride genocide murder selfishness all emerge into the world how will god respond what will god do Will his glory be defamed forever? Will humanity have hope? Will things ever change? Will evil ever end? And so we enter into the main plot line of the Bible, rescue. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians 2, if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. If you don't, uh, there's a screen that you can look up on and follow along. We're going to talk about rescue. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, verse 1. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The main three points I want to talk about today are these. Number one, we can't rescue ourselves. Number two, Christ is the only rescuer who can truly save us. And number three, when you are rescued... It changes who you are and what you do. We can't rescue ourselves. Christ is the only rescuer who can truly save us. And when you receive his rescue, it changes who you are and it changes what you do. Number one, we can't rescue ourselves. Now, what exactly is it that we need to be rescued from? Now, in this passage, Ephesians 2, Paul identifies several things. He says that our trespasses, sins that cause death. That there are evil spiritual forces that work to bring our disobedience to God. That there are passions of our flesh, the wrath of God. All of these things Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, but we were introduced to all of these things back in Genesis 3. We saw that their direct disobedience to God's command, it ultimately brought about their death, both spiritually and eventually physically. We see that the Satan enters, and we learn that there are devious and malevolent powers, spiritual forces set against us. Both Adam and Eve were driven by the passions of their flesh. Genesis 3.6, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband. And we see the justice and wrath of God through the curse placed upon humanity and their banishment from the garden. The entire story of the Bible reiterates and magnifies both our need to be rescued and our inability to do it ourselves. You see, sin is a spiritual cancer that has attached itself to our soul, and it makes us inescapably sick. We can't cure ourselves. We seek to rescue ourselves from the consequences and effects of sin, but they never address the root. We feel empty, feel isolated, angry, jealous, afraid, insignificant. All as a result of not having our lives rooted in a relationship with our creator. We try to rescue ourselves from those symptoms without ever truly addressing the root of the problem. How do we try to rescue ourselves? Well, the Bible gives us tons of examples of ways that we try to rescue ourselves. Like in Genesis 3, those that were building the Tower of Babel, we often try to rescue ourselves through our work. We try to make a name for ourselves that will last. We can find our purpose, our meaning, our enduring significance in this world through what we accomplish and produce. Like Leah and Rachel in Genesis 29 through 31, we often try to rescue ourselves through the quantity and quality of our family. If we have the right number of children, if our family looks and acts the correct way, then we can be happy and experience fulfillment. Like the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 18, we often try to rescue ourselves through the government that we have and the type of leadership we think if we can just have the right government we can just have the right leaders then we'll finally be able to experience peace and security in our lives like solomon we seek to rescue ourselves from the emptiness that is inside through entertainment through pleasure through the most uh, sensational current events and news like the pharisees of jesus's day we attempt to rescue ourselves through religion if we externally obey all the rules and commands, we can delude ourselves into thinking we don't need grace. If we can be disciplined enough to keep all of my limited checklist of Christian duties, then I can, uh, I can rescue myself. I can think that I never need to encounter God or realize the humbling truth that I need his grace. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, we try to rescue ourselves by running away from God, by rejecting his commands. There is no God. I decide what is best for my life and how I will live. I am my own Lord and King, and I will determine my purpose and meaning in life. The Bible is brimming full of examples of how we try to rescue ourselves from the effects of our rebellion against God. Work, family, government, pleasure, entertainment, religion, rejection of God. Its pages declare the inescapable truth that none of them, none of them can rescue from what truly ails us. Remember in verse 3 in Ephesians 2, it says that we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. You see, the problem is within our nature. Part of our problem is that we are rebels. It is part of who we are as, as humans. No amount of willpower, no amount of denial of running away can change the reality behind our nature to rebel against God. We can't rescue ourselves either because all the tools at our disposal are themselves broken and fallen. Our will, our emotions, our work, our relationships, our government, our world, all broken. All the tools that we would use to try to rescue ourselves from these problems themselves are broken and fail. We're all sliding down the side of a mountain to our deaths with nothing to hold on to. Nothing that can bear the weight of our sin. Nothing to protect against the spiritual forces of darkness. Nothing to hold back the justice of God's wrath against evil. If there was ever a moment that we needed rescuing, this is it. Number two, Jesus is the rescuer who can truly save us. Notice verse four. Paul tells us some very hard and very difficult news in verses one through three, but I'm really glad that he didn't stop. He says, but God, and I love the buts of the Bible, right? It's, uh, it, he says, but God, do you know God? Do you know him? Do you know that God is filthy rich? He's got big pocketbooks, but do you know what he's rich in? It's not finances, although he could be. What he's rich in is he's rich in grace. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in great love and in kindness. But you know, God is also holy. And God's holiness demands that he has justice against evil. It demands that he punish the perpetrators of evil. But his kindness demands that he, he rescue those very same perpetrators, those very agents that are committing evil. He rescues them. How? How is it that God can both be just and punish evil and the perpetrators of evil, and yet show his kindness and rescue those that are perpetrating that very evil. And this is the conundrum that the Old Testament puts us in. It shows us God's heart of justice and holiness, but yet God's heart of love and grace towards his people. But in steps, Jesus. Jesus alone is able to rescue us because he satisfies both God's wrath and God's kindness towards us. How does he do this? How does Jesus uniquely save us? He does this through what's called the gospel. And the gospel literally means good news. It is a declaration of what Jesus has done for us. And we can see the gospel in these three words. Incarnation, substitution, and resurrection. The first one, incarnation. So Jesus rescues us first by becoming like us. The Old Testament story ends with a big question mark. Will the promised Messiah come to rescue God's people? No one expected the Messiah to be divine for God himself to enter into the story and to get his hands dirty, recreating his creation. Jesus is fully God, but yet he is fully man. He was born, not created. He is, has two distinct natures wrapped into one person, God and flesh. But what does Jesus' incarnation actually mean for us? It means that we have a picture of what God is really like in Jesus. John fourteen nine says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see the full picture of what God is truly like. It means that Jesus is our perfect and our final representative. That he has succeeded where Adam failed. Romans five nineteen: for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous it means that god has forever taken in the experiences and the pain of humanity within himself hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin it means that the perfect son of god became a son of man in order that sons of men might become sons of god romans 8:29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus rescues us by becoming like us in the incarnation. Jesus rescues us also by his substitutionary death, he rescues us by taking our place, becoming our substitute. He exchanges his life for ours. Now, this act of substitute sacrifice, it moves us, it motivates us. It's all over our stories, right? In the Hunger Games, Katniss chooses to exchange her life for her sister, Prims. In the end of Rudy, right, all of the players go on to the coach's desk and they all slap their jerseys down, right? Signifying that they are willing to exchange their spot on the field for his on the bench. In the Dark Knight, Batman exchanges his innocence and his reputation for the guilt and the infamy of Harvey Dent. We are moved and we are captivated by this self-sacrifice, this substitutionary act of a person exchanging their life for another's. No one thought that Jesus was going to die. No one. He was supposed to have political, military victory over his enemies. And this is the great mystery, that victory has come out of seeming defeat, that Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life, yet he dies a horrendous, vile, and horrific death on a cross. Why? That was not what he was due. That was not what was owed to him for his victorious and perfect life. Why? Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. The great exchange. Jesus became sin, that in exchange we can receive forgiveness and be put in right relationship with God. Jesus was separated from his father, that in exchange we can be brought into the divine family forever. Jesus swallowed the curse placed upon humanity, that in exchange we might have new and enduring life. Jesus endures death, that in exchange we might be brought back in relationship to God. Jesus took on hell, that in exchange we might have heaven. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus rescues us by taking our place, by dying our death, that we might have new life. Jesus rescues us by rising again from the dead. The physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead rescues us by giving us brand new life. Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of guarantee that Jesus accomplished victory and that he is and did indeed save all those who hold on to him, that all those that cry out to God, Jesus has rescued. And his resurrection from the dead is, from the dead is God's promise that it is true, that he is able to do it. When we cry out for God's grace in Christ, we are given new life, and we are raised from the dead, from the death of sin and slavery. John fourteen nineteen it says, yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live. Christ's resurrection is a promise that God can bring anyone who turns to him out of death and into life. It's a promise that death is not the end. It's his promise that evil will not win. It is his promise that this world that is marred and torn by sin, just like Jesus' body on the cross, will experience resurrection and healing. It is his promise that we can experience right now freedom, joy, and peace as we hold on to Jesus. It is his promise that nothing is impossible with God. It is what lifts us out of the despair and hopelessness that at times we find ourselves by looking around in this world because it shows us that God has won. Second Corinthians 4, 16, it says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Jesus has rescued us by rising again from the dead. Number three, when we are rescued, being rescued, it changes who we are and it changes what we do. So what now? We realize that we can't rescue ourselves, that we are drowning, we can't keep afloat, we're sliding down a mountain with nothing to hold on to, but Jesus comes in. He steps into our story. He steps into our brokenness. He becomes like us to represent us, to fulfill the commands that you and I have broken, to live a life that we can never live. He takes on our sin, our guilt, our shame, our death, that we might experience grace and mercy He rises victoriously from the grave that we might have new life and hope. And all this is done by God's grace as a gift to be received. Everything we have, everything that we can receive by God is all an act of utter grace, undeserved by us. But when we receive God's grace and is rescued, everything begins to change in our life. It begins to change who we are. It changes what we do. You see, we have a new identity As sons and daughters of the king, before sin had alienated us, it had separated us, it had made us orphans. But God, as a king, he comes in the middle of our orphanage, in the middle of our separation where we had no one to look out for, and he adopts us into his kingdom. He comes in and he says, no longer are you an orphan, but you are my son, you are my daughter. But it takes a while for that identity to start to sink into us, right? So often we want to start changing our behavior. If I can just change how I act, that's not the way it works. Right? I mean, imagine Imagine an orphan and all of a sudden a king comes along and says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my family. But that orphan has been on the streets so long that they don't know what it looks like to act like a son and daughter of the king. They're so used to stealing things for their food. They're not sure where the next meal is going to come. They're so used to you know, being cold at night that they almost don't believe it's going to be true. And so some of their old nature as orphans is still there. But as their belief changes, as they really understand it's true, I really am. I'm a daughter of a king. I really am a son of a king. This is my identity. This is actually who I am. Their behavior starts to change. How they live begins to change and reflect who their father is as a king. They no longer think that they need to steal for food and hide food in their pockets. They no longer distrust what their father says, but they begin to believe what he says. And this is what it says. It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. He has molded us. He has stepped down and like clay fashioned us into a new creation. And he has called us into new mission to do, to do good works. But you see, we do these good works from a posture of not trying to earn our salvation, but out of gratefulness. We can never pay God back for what he has done for us. Our obedience to his commands, they come out of a humble gratefulness. ...for what he has done in Christ. Instead, we are called to have faith. As C.S. Lewis says, "...to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you do not follow what they said. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him... ...but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because the first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Our obedience to God's word can never earn our salvation, but we are called to have faith. We are called to trust that Jesus is and can do what he has promised. We hold on to him. There I was sliding down the side of a mountain, holding on and trying to grab at everything I could. Nothing was able to bear my weight. But finally, I was able to grab out and hold on to what seemed to be a very small root, but underneath its roots ran deep. And as I held on, I cried out to my father, and I saw him coming down on all fours to pick me up and grab me in his arms and rescue me and say, I've got you, my son. You're okay. Everything's going to be all right. God is a good father, and he is there to rescue all those that cry out for him. Do you know that his grace and his love towards you run deep? He loves you. Cry out for his rescue. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful that in Jesus you have come after us. You have entered into our story and our brokenness. You showed us grace that we do not deserve. And so we pray that we would cry out for you, Lord. We would realize the danger that that our sin has put us in, our rebellion against you, and that we would cry out for your rescue to change us. Each day that we would be a fresh and know you are there for us and that you want to guide us and lead us. You are a good Father. We love you. It's in your name, we pray Jesus. Amen.